Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died But behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Righto. Well, I just read that from the English Standard Version of the Bible. And um, in the English Standard Version, the, the phrase, fear not, occurs 33 times. Another 33 times, it says, do not be afraid. And usually these words are spoken either by God or by one of his messengers, either an angel or a disciple or a prophet. But why is it said so often? Why do we humans get so jolly afraid? In Australia, anxiety is the most common mental health condition. Did you know that? I I didn't realise that until I looked up the statistics. On average, one in four people, that's one in three women or one in five men, will experience anxiety. In a 12-month period, over 2 million Australians experience anxiety, which is a debilitating fear or or an anxiousness that they just cannot control. And Christians are not immune from fear. And spiritually speaking, fear comes usually when one of two things happen. Either a person encounters God face to face or or one of his messengers and and they are struck with fear because of the awesome presence of God. So, for example, uh, when the angels appeared to the shepherds on the very first Christmas morning, um, sorry, night, they were filled with a great fear and the angel said to them, 
fear not. Uh, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The other circumstance where, where God says, do not be afraid, that other times when, when we, we have this fear that God needs to speak to, is when the circumstances around us and the pressures around us start to build up and we begin to fear what our enemies might do to us or we begin to fear for what, for what the future might hold or we begin to fear that, that we're just not in a good place. And this fear just grows and grows until it cripples us. But then God steps in and says, fear not. And he opens our spiritual eyes so that we can see what's really going on. And when God reveals to us his purpose, and when God reveals to us his activity, that is what God is doing in the midst of the circumstances that we're in. And when we can begin to see things from God's perspective, and we can see that through all of this bad stuff, that through all of the dangers and through all of the persecutions and all of the humiliations that we might encounter, we can see that God's purposes are being achieved and that through all of it that God is with us in our troubles, then we know that we don't need to fear. So, for example, when Paul was in Corinth, the Jews were against him. And Paul had already had to flee for his life from city after city. He'd go into city, he'd start preaching the gospel, and then there'd be opposition rise up against him and, and they'd try to kill him, usually. And he'd have to get out to, to flee for his life. And he thought that this was going to happen again in Corinth. He was getting all of this opposition and he thought he was going to have to flee for his life again. But then the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Here's another example. The king of Syria wanted to take out the prophet Elisha, not, not on a date. Um, he wanted to take him out because the prophet Elisha was ruining all of his plans. You know, the king of Syria said, I don't know, it's as if somebody's in my own bedroom. He knows everything that's going to happen and, and my enemy Israel seemed to be able to just, they know what I'm about to do. Why is this happening? And they said, oh, it's because that prophet Elisha, God just tells him what you're about to do and he warns them. They said, right, he's got to go. And so um, the king of Syria wanted to get him and so he sent a whole army to capture him. A whole army of horses and chariots to capture one man. And Elisha's servant saw these, saw that they're getting surrounded by these, and, and he was terrified. Oh no, what are we going to do? And, and Elisha said, Don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, can you open his eyes so that he can see what I see? And the young man his eyes were open and he saw that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, the Lord's armies of angels were invisible to human eyes and, and, and his servant, he, he couldn't see that this was going on, but they were there and they were there to protect them. So these are the two main types of fear. Fear at the awesome presence of God and fear of our enemies, or fear of our circumstances, or fear of our future. Because we, we don't know what God's doing, and we don't seem to have enough faith to just trust him. 
without knowing what's going on. So, what sort of fear was John encountering in this revelation? Well, it's actually both. Both of those types. Here in the opening paragraphs of the revelation, John comes face to face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he is utterly terrified. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You know, I've heard it said by a lot of people that, oh, if you're a true Christian, then you, then you won't be afraid of God. You won't fear God. Rubbish. Rubbish. What happened to John? This John is the disciple of Jesus. John used to refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And yet when he came face to face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ in all of his terrible glory, he fell down on the ground as if he was dead. He could not stand before him. How could we possibly? Our generation have generally lost our fear of God. And some of the older people here would probably remember when, when most people had a bit of a fear of God at least. There once was a time if somebody was dying, the family would call the minister in so that, so that hopefully their loved one could make their peace with God before they died. That rarely happens today. Today, nowadays, if the minister gets a call at all, it's usually after they've died and it's certainly after they've called the funeral director and sometimes after they've called the solicitor to make sure that the will's all okay. We've lost our fear of God. Um, I've talked a number of times about, I wish I could reclaim the word awesome for what it really means. The word awesome used to describe something that produced awe in the beholder and awe used to mean Feelings of reverential fear or dread. Whereas now, awe is used to describe a thing of beauty. I can stand on a lookout and and gaze at awe at the beautiful scene before me. Um, And awesome seems to have become to mean, oh, that's really good. When John saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory, He was terrified. He was struck with a holy awe. He fell down on the ground as if he was dead. And then Jesus laid his hand on him and said, fear not. The point is, as Christians, yes, we can stand before God. We are worthy. But only because he lays his hand on us and makes us worthy. We fall down in reverential fear and he lifts us up. So so what did John see that made him fear so? Well, he saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of those lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest the hairs of his head were white like like white wool like snow his eyes were like a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters in his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength now 
Remember in the introduction to Revelation chapter 1, I explained how this book of the Bible is what's known as apocalyptic literature. That means it uses images, it uses pictures to give a message to us. We need to try and... Now, for some people this is hard, and I'm one of those people. I am not a visual person. Um, But... So understanding Revelation is a bit hard for me, whereas some people are visual people and they can see an image and know what it means. Um, So we've got to struggle with these images and and some of these images, as I said in the introduction, are explained within the Bible itself. Some of them are explained within the Revelation itself and some of them we're not even going to know what they mean. But let's look at each of these images to, to see what what God is trying to tell us. Let's start with the lampstands. The lampstands represent the seven churches. And John was to provide each of these seven churches with a copy of the Revelation, right? So he is to to write down the Revelation and it was going to go on a circuit trip to around each of those seven churches. And I've thought about this and, and isn't the image of a lampstand a great image for a church. What's the job of a lampstand? The job of a lampstand is to hold up a light so that it can give light to the whole room. And the church does not exist for itself. The church exists to hold up the light of Christ so that the whole world can see Jesus Christ. As a church, we have no glory of our own. We don't even have any purpose of our own. Our whole purpose is to hold forth the light of Christ. And the number seven is is significant. We're going to hear the number seven quite a bit throughout this book of Revelation. It represents completeness or a wholeness, a totality. And over the next few weeks, as we study the letters to the seven churches, we're going to discover that these seven churches represent all of the different types of churches that we can find in the world today. And all of the types of good things that these churches are doing, we'll find churches in our world today that are doing good things like that. And all of the types of bad things that the churches are involved in, we'll see that there's churches in our world today who are caught up in the same errors. And so it represents a totality of all of the different types of churches. And Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. He's surrounded by them. He walks among them. Christ is in the midst of his people. We haven't come here today to just meet with one another. We've also come here today to meet with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope we become very aware of this when we share communion later on at the end of the service. In communion, we commune not just with one another, but we commune with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's move on. The stars. The stars that Jesus holds in his hands represent the angels of the seven churches. Did you know that this church, Bush Disciples, 
isn't by any means a product of human planning or human effort or ability. This is something that God is doing. A church has power and a church has life by means of the Spirit of God. And it seems here that God has appointed an angel to each church. And we're going to find out over the next few weeks that when a church becomes godless, the Lord can actually remove their lampstand. He removes the position of that church. He, he, he removes them from his presence. He removes his blessing on that church to let it die. And that church, well, it may continue to, to exist for a little while as, as a human club or a human institution, but God has left it. And what a terrible thing it is for God to leave a church. That means it has died spiritually. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're going to see that in a few weeks' time. He wore a long robe and a golden sash, which obviously mark him as a person of importance and distinction. Maybe it could be seen as a priestly garment. Um, he is the one who, who brings us before God. The hair of his head is bright white, really bright white. We don't need to do the Omo ultraviolet test for this one. And if any of you know what I'm talking about and can remember the Omo ad where they do the ultraviolet test, uh, you, you know it, Adre. I thought that would be long gone before you came to Australia. Or do you have it in South Africa too? You had it in South Africa. Wow, an international ad. And our kids have no idea what I'm talking about. Back in the day when ultraviolet lights were, whew, that's flash, amazing. Um, they'd turn all the lights off and put the ultraviolet light on a white T-shirt and go, this one's been washed with Omo. Look how bright it is. And this one, oh, that's our opposition. Not so good. Okay. But we don't need to do the Omo test to know that Jesus' hair was white. He leaves absolutely no doubt it's pure white. It's white like white wool. Um, now, of course, we know that wool can come in all sorts of colours, but ultimately we're aiming for white. But then he says white like snow. Um, I still remember the first time I saw snow, and I don't, it's not too hard for me because it's not that long ago. And it's right. Snow is really white, really white and really bright. Um, now... This is an image of holiness, sure enough. But there's something important here that, that tells us even something else about Jesus. This is an image which is identical to the image in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 of the Ancient of Days. Daniel saw this, came face to face with the Ancient of Days. He saw this image. And the Ancient of Days is God himself. And this image is identical. Jesus Christ is God. I hope you never believe the Jehovah's Witnesses when they say, oh, don't believe in the Trinity, and they'll try and tell you that Jesus is an angel. Jesus isn't an angel. Jesus is God himself. And then John describes his eyes. They are like a flame of fire. Here he is, Jesus is among the churches and he knows our deeds. He sees everything with his eyes of fire. 
He knows very well the spiritual condition of every church. He knows our hearts. He knows the spiritual condition of this church. You know, we can, we can try and present an image that's different to what we really are, but he can see right through it. And based upon what Jesus observes with his penetrating eyes of fire, a church will either be blessed or they will be judged by its deeds. And we're going to see this unfolding as we study the seven letters to the seven churches. Some of those churches will be blessed and some of them will be judged. Next is a description of his feet. They are like polished bronze that have been refined in a fire. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. But I do know that my feet are the first part of me to get grubby. And I was thinking about this and thinking, oh, but surely with my shoes on, they're, they're nice and good. But no, you take your shoes off and you know you need, still need to have a shower, hey. And I was actually, just be wary, everybody. There's a great big dob of grease over there. And I trod in it this morning. And you know what happened then? There's my dirty black footprints all over here now. And um, I'm very aware that the first part of us to get grubby are our feet. But this isn't the case with Jesus. Well, Jesus' feet are nothing but the image of purity and holiness. And with those feet, he walks among the churches. The holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ is right here with us today. Are you humbled by that? I'm humbled by that. And for this reason, when we come together to worship, we need to remember that our Lord Jesus Christ in all of his holiness is right here in our presence. And so we've, we come in an attitude of humility. We come in an attitude of we need Christ to make us right. We need Christ to make us worthy to be, for, to be before God. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Um, I, think of, I think of a big waterfall, just the, the noise that that can produce. Now, this also is a description that Ezekiel used of God. He said that, it, that, this, that God's voice sounded like that, the roar of many waters. It's an, it's an image of immense power, the immense power of God's word. In his right hand, he held the seven stars where he talked about that. Jesus holds us. He holds the church in the palm of his hand and we belong to him. Now, here's the one that I noticed that most of the nice feel-good pictures miss out. And how long did you have to search to find the sword coming out of the mouth, Mrs. B? Not very long? Okay, righto. A sword coming out of his mouth. How many of you, when you picture Jesus... And, and you know that he loves you and you know what he's done for us. How many of you, when you picture Jesus, picture him with a great big sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth? We don't generally do it, do we? What's that about? 
Well, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, it talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All right? Jesus' words are the words of God himself. And his words can cut deep. And his words have power. And they have authority. With his words, he has the authority to judge. And his face is like the sun shining in full strength. Now, I've told you a number of times before that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. The word, the Greek word that our Bibles translate as full strength in, in the Greek, the word is dunamai, um, from which we get our word dynamite. Okay? So when it says that his face was like the sun shining in full strength, we've got to think of the, the power of dynamite. Okay? So this represents that Jesus has the immense power and glory of our Lord sorry, that the immense power and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now it isn't any wonder that in fear John fell as if he was dead. Do you think you'd be able to stand if you were encountered with Jesus? in that kind of image, even though we've read it and we know to expect it, do you think you could stand when we have Jesus in all of his power and all of his glory? But Jesus reached down and put his hand on him and said these words, Fear not. And he explained to John why he had no reason to fear. John didn't need to be afraid of the one who was standing before him because he described himself as the living one. He said, I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. And at that point, I reckon there must have been a remarkable confirmation for John. You know, he's probably thinking in, in this vision, he's thinking, well, you're probably supposed to be Jesus, but you look nothing like the Jesus who I knew. But what a remarkable confirmation for him when he says, I was dead, but I'm risen and I'm alive forevermore. He goes, you are Jesus. Well, that's what I'm thinking he probably thought. I don't know. And John knew that he didn't have any reason to be afraid of Jesus. You see, when John wrote the Gospel of John to record the things that Jesus had said and did in it, he didn't used to re refer to himself as me or I. He didn't used to refer to himself as John. Do you know how he described himself? The disciple whom Jesus loved. In John's eyes, that's all he had going for him. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Yeah, he loved all the other disciples as well, but I know that he loved me. 
And John knew he didn't need to be afraid of Jesus because he knew that Jesus loved him. So there you go. He, he had this fear because he had come face to face with the living God in all of his glory and power and might. But there is also a second reason, I believe, that John was told to fear not. The revelation that Jesus is about to unveil to John, and that's what revelation means. It means a great unveiling. And this revelation that we're going to be studying over the next several months at times, it is going to be utterly terrifying. He's going to be describing the tribulation that the people of God will have to endure in the last days. Terrible times. He's going to be telling the terrible truth of the cataclysmic events that are going to take place at the end of time. And John is already experiencing some level of this tribulation. When John received this vision, he was on the Greek island called Patmos. And he wasn't there to enjoy the wonderful climate of a Mediterranean paradise. He was locked up in a prison. And he was in that prison for one reason and one reason only, because he was a Christian who dared to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to a society who didn't want to hear it. And he didn't know what was going to become of him in that prison. But Jesus is telling John, you don't need to be afraid. The one thing that you need to remember as you see this vision that I'm giving to you, and by the way, the one thing that we need to remember as we study this book of Revelation is no matter how scary it might seem, might seem don't be afraid. Because God is in control. And we're going to keep getting little glimpses of this, of, of, of God on his throne. Through all of the things, all of the events of history that are going to unfold, we're going to be continually catching little glimpses that God is still on his throne. God is in control. Jesus said, I have the keys to death and Hades. Hades, by the way, is is the realm of the dead. And what Jesus is saying is he is totally in control. It's okay. It's okay that John is in prison. Jesus is in control of that. It's okay when we are persecuted for his name. He's told us to expect that and he is in control of it. It's okay when circumstances rise up against us and threaten to swamp us because Jesus holds the keys to life and death. And because of this, we're even okay if Christians are martyred for their faith and if we are martyred for our faith because even physical death cannot take us from the realm of Jesus' care and protection. It's okay. God is in control. Jesus Christ is the first and the last. That means he is the Lord God Almighty. And as we study the revelation of Jesus Christ and as we hear what happens with the coming end, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And whatever's going on in your life right now, if you are obedient to Christ, 
trust him. Trust him. Trust him with your whole life. Trust him with your commitment to him. Trust him with your obedience. You can trust your family to him. You can trust your present to him. You can trust your future to him. You can trust him. Because he is in control. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you that you are in control. We want to thank you that you have entrusted the keys of death and Hades to the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Saviour, the Lord, our God. And Lord, we want to thank you that we can trust you with every part of our lives. Lord, help us to not fear. Help us to trust in you through every circumstance in our life and to entrust to you our whole lives, every bit of it, Lord. And Lord, as we study this book of Revelation over the next few months, Lord, we pray that you would give us stamina to stick at it, that we wouldn't be scared off or become frustrated with some of the imagery that we just don't understand. But Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to our hearts every step of the way and that you would be revealing to us your will for us as a people and your will for us as a church. Lord, I pray that you would be revealing to us personally and as a church those areas that we need to repent of. And Lord, I pray that you would be readying us to be the people who you want us to be when Jesus returns, that you would perfect us, that we would become that holy bride who, are you, who you are returning to claim. In Jesus' name, amen.